What up, everybody? Uh, we got a special episode of Text of the Matter for you all. Uh, I'm Egon Sheely. Hi, I'm Misha. And uh, we're here to talk about stonks. Game stonks. We thought it would be good. Obviously, normally we deal with with philosophical texts. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to do a special episode regarding GameStop and AMC and the short squeeze that uh, is being attempted right now because it's this really cool intersection between certain elements of critical theory that's pretty interesting uh, and just the political ramifications of what's going on is uh, A, pretty awesome, but B, also very unexpected. So we kind of want to break down the players uh, kind of bring you up to speed if you haven't been following on exactly what's going on and why, and sort of the kind of uh, philosophical and political and theoretical ramifications that are coming from all this, because uh, particularly compared to the past four years of Trumpism, um, it, it feels like I woke up to a brand new day, honestly. It is a really, really heterogeneous situation. I mean, just... There are very many de details, and we're going to try to get to all of them. Um, I think a good place to start is just talking about GameStop and where it was directly prior to this situation, right? So um, as, as recently as a couple weeks ago, GameStop was selling at about $4 a share. Um, it topped out at about 480 Is that correct uh, Egon? yeah so uh the highest it hit which i think was on wednesday wednesday or thursday which would have been january 27th or 28th it topped out at 483 dollars 483 dollars right and uh it is currently sitting at around 320 or so right um, and uh, yeah, it's at three twelve right now. Yeah, three twelve, right? So about a year ago, Dr. My Michael Burry, a uh, person who, if you have seen the Big Short, was played by Christian Bale and was a big uh, uh, shorter of the subprime mortgage crisis, right? Um, purchased five point eight of GameStop at about two to 420 a share um, uh, for about $15 million through his Scion Asset Management. And that retired about half of outstanding stock. And he demanded that G uh, GameStop, GME, as it will be known from now on, uh, use its 300 million in stock to buy, to buy back and consolidate. So it had a $300 million $300 million limit on how much you could spend, and it would consolidate its valuation in the market, right? So over the first nine months of the year, uh, GameStop had lost about $280 million, um, and it wasn't expected to profit until uh, 2023. And this is all according to Bloomberg, right? It was getting comparisons to... Uh, JCPenney to Blockbuster to like essentially outmoded brick and mortar stores that uh, were just overwhelmed by online sales. And in the case of 
uh, GameStop, it was direct downloading from uh, PlayStation, Xbox, um, uh, Switch, and and on PC with Steam, right? Um, and so what ha started happening was short selling by um, uh, largely two firms, one uh, called Citron Research and the other called Melvin Capital, right? Just the best name for a capital firm of all time. We're Melvin Capital. Melvin Capital, right? What what short selling means is that a uh, a firm borrows money from a lender. They go and buy the stock. Right? It's a little it's a little different actually uh, because they're not borrowing money to buy the stock. Uh, so like Melvin Capital, like the hedge fund Melvin Capital, who owns the most of the shorted stock. Basically, what you do is you go to a broker and you borrow the stock. So you go to someone who owns the GME stock and you say, I want to borrow it from you. Yeah. And that that the hedge fund is making is that they think the stock price is going to drop. Yeah. So what they do is they take a stock that they don't own, that they're only borrowing from a broker and they sell that stock um, for whatever the market price is. So, you know, um, they they had a lot at 10, they had a lot at 20, there's a lot at four. But yeah. basically the idea is that once the term is due for when they have to give that stock that they borrowed back, that they can go to the market and buy it for a cheaper price than they sold it for. And, and so hence they, they make whatever that difference is, right? Yeah. And Citron and Melvin had massive amounts of money uh, in their short portfolio on GameStop, right? More so, more stocks than actually existed, right? And this is one of the key features of it, right? Right. Um, and so as far as shorting goes, this is the weird thing about shorting is that since you're actually borrowing the stock to begin with, you can essentially sell it more times than it exists. So I think Melvin Capital, I've seen way different numbers depending on what you're reading, but as much as like 140% over the amount of stock that actually exists. Yeah. So you have this Reddit called Wall Street Bets, right? And they are made up of a wide range of different people, you know, uh, white collar, blue collar, just general, um, you know, hobbyist traders who uh, share their knowledge in public and uh, try to make interesting decisions and interesting purchases. Um, and there is one user in, in uh, particular named Deep Fucking Value, of course, um, who made a video. He, he would have these videos called Kitty Corners. And they, this one, and they're normally a minute to five minutes. But this was an hour-long video on why he was bearish about GME, right? So um, he he has a thesis and it has three points, right? And these follow that digital risks are overblown, that negative sentiment is overdone, and that value is overlooked. So the first two are pretty self-explanatory, right? Um, digital risks are overblown. For instance in evaluations of how much of the market is disc sales versus 
digital sales, a lot of those digital sales that are accounted for are in-game purchases. So when you talk about who's, where are you buying hardware from, where are you buying the original game from, the amount that is actually being sold by GameStop is likely far higher than 17% of the marketplace, given that they are a huge percentage of disc sales. Um, an example of negative sentiment is overdone, like, oh, I haven't bought there in a long time. Well, one, there is the case of COVID, but two, the fact is that they have a core base of people who buy and resell there that has stayed steady for a long time. And then the most complex was his value overloads, which made up about, about uh, three quarters of the video, of the hour long video. And uh, I can summarize a, a majority of his points. He called these changes under the hood. So he said, number one, there was uh, new management. Um, two, they were cutting costs. Three, there was better capital allocation. They were selling assets like planes. Um, they extended maturities, which are um, date of life of transactions. So they maybe made some transaction and they pushed the date out to a further time. They got rid of covenants, which are pro promises or indentures to uh, other institutions. Um, they had adequate liquidity, $6 billion in revenue, $1 billion in quarter one 2020, despite the losses. Um, they were trading at 4% of revenue, um, which gave them what he called large operating leverage. Um, they were historically good at, create, uh, at generating free cash flow. So that means the amount of money that they have over what it takes to operate the business. Um, their magazine Game Informer, which comes with, uh, with uh, sub a, essentially a uh, subscription card to the store itself, was number five in magazine subs, which it made it an uh, interesting thing to sell down the line. They were properly valued on the market to some degree. Stable, they were stable through the last console cycle. There was the pandemic affect on console sales, so when that goes down, there's going to be more people who were put, saving money, who will now spend. Um, and then if you combine their cash flow with current valuation, um, which was uh, 250 million, or which was 500 million, plus another 100 million, they double their market valuation, which was about 250 million, right? So all these factors came into play for the initial interest of this Reddit on this specific stock. And that is what drove it to its earlier levels at $14, at $20, at $40. Right, um, right. And so it's it's kind of this like double fronted thing, right? Where you've got deep fucking value who's bullish on, um, on GameStop for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, like, at the, and you mentioned a bunch of them, Ryan Cohen, who turned Chewy into a multi-billion dollar pet food company, yes. um, has since taken over control of GameStop. They're getting rid of some of their brick and mortar stores to uh, basically be more profitable at the stores that they have. Um, but also the recognition that um, you have these hedge funds who had overshorted 
GameStop. And uh, the thing with squeezing a short is um, if you are shorting the market on something and you expect the price to drop, what happens is when your terms become due and you have to give that sh that sh share that uh, remember we talked about that you borrowed back to the person you borrowed it from the idea is that it's going to be lower so you'll just buy it from the market and so one of the things that deep fucking value and wall street bets had decided is that if they drive the value of that share up it forces the hedge funds to um basically cover their losses by they have to buy uh, that stock. And so when they see the stock going up, what often happens, and you see this with Volkswagen in 2008, um, is there's a huge surge in the cost of the price because you're basically forcing the short sellers to all buy at the same time because every time the share price goes higher, they lose more money. Yeah. And so you have this double thing where it's like, oh, this is actually an undervalued stock to also, so it's good to hold on long-term, but in the short-term, uh, you actually could stand to make a lot of money by squeezing the short sellers to all buy back their stocks at the same time at an inflated rate. Um, and so you get a lot of people really interested because it seems like a get-rich-quick scheme, basically. Absolutely, and um, a uh, good comparison that um, I've heard you make in conversation was with Bitcoin. Right. Um, I think I can't think of many people out there who were interested in computers and had knowledge of Bitcoin when it first appeared, but who don't think, damn, I wish I had bought two right. Bitcoin when it was a couple dollars or had gone through the work to figure out how to get it off the Tor network or how to data mine it or whatever. Because even if you had half a Bitcoin, you have a couple thousand dollars now. Um, depending on, on which type of currency it is. Um, so this really created a moment that was like that, that a lot of people, there, there were um, very astute investors on, on the Reddit, and then there was also this kind of like intensity of interest around what uh, all the activity and getting being part of the activity. And so far, it has paid off for uh, many people. Um, and then you had these um, two uh, outside investors come in. Um, uh, would you like to talk about the two real quick? You're talking about uh, Citron? No, no. Uh, with with uh, Elon and, and Shaman, right? Right. So, we have Chamath, uh, Palagapia, and uh, um, Muskman, and Elon Musk, right? And they, oh, Muskman, yeah, they both made tweets that um, were one was cryptic. You know, Elon Musk, in his general tendency, uh, was playing, uh, you know rich prankster, richest man in the world prankster, and wrote, wrote game stocks and, and linked it to uh, GME. And that was the first tweet. And then Chamath, he, he uh, said 
he made a post like, oh, I'll, I'll put $1 million into anything to give me some ideas. And so people told him about this GameStop. And all of a sudden you have these two very well-known activist investors, you know, multi-billionaires. I mean, Elon Musk is now, again, the richest man in the world, right? And they- real experts, right? The experts yeah. in their field, not deep fucking value, right? Yeah as some Reddit user, but like people that, um, you know, carry a certain cachet with their identity and their name and stuff. And, you know, you've got Elon Musk making and uh, uh, making these tweets and uh, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya also being interviewed and making tweets at a time where GME is starting to blow up. This kind of time before that we're talking about, the stock went from like $4 to $18. And then all of a sudden it's $40. Yeah. But if you think about it, if you own, right, like say $1,000 of four, $4 stock, if it all of a sudden becomes worth $40, what, you've made $40,000? Is that math right? I'm bad at math, so don't listen to me. But you've made a lot, a huge return already on your investment. You're, yeah, if you're saying saying uh, for $1,000 worth, yeah. You, yeah. You have about $40,000, $50,000. And um, when you get Elon Musk and, uh, and Chamath joining this, the share is now worth like a hundred and something dollars. Right. Yeah. So like, Again, if you think you were there on the ground floor, screw $40,000. You made $400,000. Yeah. You know? And so it's starting to get the eyes of people because people are you know, making these like really inconceivable gains at this point. Yes. Um, and, and what's really interesting about their in entry into the fold is them as characters, right? Um, Elon Musk has very actively cultivated this image of like the friend of the four channers right right uh, as like the cool guy who's creating things just for fun but in, but in fact he's the richest man on earth and he is a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist and and lives as such um well chamath is a, a little more interesting he was on the ground floor for the creation of facebook Right, and he um, has done some rather interesting analysis about um, how Wall Street bets functions and about what the role of disruption plays. So he has this sort of idea about disruption um, as a potential to create sustainable work, which is a, which is far closer to the Chinese notion of capitalism, right, where the the CEO of a company is supposed to like bow to the workers and is is supposed to have the workers' interest in mind, whether that's true or not, which is largely untrue. But it, it definitely has a different image than the classic Wolf of Wall Street. And we actually have a couple clips of Chamath to play for you to give you exactly what he thinks about Wall Street bets and what he thinks about uh, investing in the market. 
tangible at it. You know, it's like it's like anything else, right? It's like if you take professional sports, like the people that are the best are the ones that practice at it and divorce the result from the practice and the yeah. act, uh, because the 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 actual product of scoring happens in all kinds of random ways, but the act of purposeful practice and preparation is what gets you to that moment. You say that like a partial owner of the Garden State Warriors. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I do say that that way. Um, and how, so, how is that? I mean, is that something that you knew before watching how Steph Curry and others practice or something, you know, knowledge that has deepened by being up close to that organization? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I think it's very much the latter. It's, you know, people want very crisp, clean narratives to describe really grandiose things that happen in the world, whether it's winning championships or whether it's starting and building great companies. And the actual facts underneath are much more complicated and nuanced. There's all kinds of tension, physical, emotional, mental, that go into creating something excellent. Um, and so, you know, when I, like I said, the first 15, the first goal was be good at one thing, which is to identify and incubate and nurture disruptive technologies. What I would say is actually, you know, I gave myself a 15-year target, and I think that in the first seven years, we've come to a place where I have high confidence that we know how to do that. Mm. And so now, in many ways, the next chapter starts. And in chapter two... Does that mean you did it in twice the time you expected? In half the time? Yeah. I, I, I thought it would be like a 15-year thing, and I think, you know, by year seven... Um, I think we have a good handle on how to do that part of the business. Um, and so in many ways now, Chapter 2 has started. And in Chapter 2, what it's about is now being able to take those technologies and apply them constructively to change markets for the better, but at the same time, take all the knowledge that you learn from them and apply it to some of the legacy businesses and see if you can't improve those as well. And the reason why that's important is I think like true knowledge will come from understanding both sets of sets of companies. Meaning, you know, sometimes people want to be very dismissive of how things have been done. And in other cases, people want to be very dismissive of new ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. Neither are the way that you have maximal impact and success. So what I mean by that is there are many things that, you know, when I was at Facebook that we did that were pioneering. But frankly, there were many things that we did that were just copies of things that were tried, tested, and true. And so acknowledging the fact that, that the the nuances of, of doing anything great will rely on both sets of information and knowledge. And so for me, now what I'm trying to do is say, okay, on the one hand, can we build the next great chip for machine learning? Yes. But on the other hand, can we actually help a company that employs hundreds of thousands of people in the world how to leverage that technology to keep those employees fully employed? That's a great challenge. And I would encourage anybody who is dismissive of this thing to go into Wall Street Bets and actually just read the forums. And I think that you're going to see three kinds of posts. The first kind of content are a lot of people doing some incredible fundamental diligence on companies, trying to think about long-term value. And in my opinion, many of them are doing as good and, frankly, a better job than a lot of hedge fund analysts that I work with. That's number one. The second are a lot of people who believe that, you know, coming out of 2008, what happened was Wall Street took an enormous amount of risk, and they left retail as the bag holder. And a lot of these kids were in grade school and high school when that happened. They lost their homes. Their parents lost their jobs. And they've always wondered, like, why did those folks get bailed out for taking enormous amounts of risk, and nobody helped and showed up to help my family? 
And then the third thing is a realization that instead of having idea dinners or, you know, quiet, whispered conversations amongst hedge funds in the Hamptons, these kids have the courage to do it transparently in a forum. And I'm not saying all of it is perfect by any means, but I think it takes um, an enormous amount of faith in the system to be that transparent, to talk about things, and then for each individual to make their own mind up and to do things, whether it's to buy and to sell. So, um, you know, Chamath has some pretty interesting things to say about uh, about capitalism. You know, his, 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 his distinction is between the disruptor and the disrupted, right? The disrupted being the corporate Wall Street status quo, the disruptor being a business person who is thinking about technologies, both for uh, legacy products and for new products in new ways and ways that create jobs. And in an ideal sense, it sounds great, but you know, this is capitalism. And for the most part, no one gets out unexploited. Right. Well, and I right. think this is like the interesting, one of the interesting moments of this whole situation too, is that, you know, you get on one hand, a lot of people on one side decrying what Wall Street Bets is doing and saying that this goes against all market fundamentals. And in some ways they're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's truth to that point. Because, uh, while short squeezes in and of themselves aren't unknown to um, Wall Street or the stock market at all, um, the sort of people who are who make up this group who are forcing the short squeeze um, are coming with motivations that are a far cry from the fundamentals of Wall Street. Um, but at the same time, you also have people is sort of defining what Wall Street bets are doing. I mean, as 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 um, uh, what's his name, is it John Smith or John Adams, the Invisible Hand of the Market. Um, uh, Smith. John Smith, right? But that they were in fact personifying that hand by doing this. That they recognized someone who made a bad bet. And as we can look at, you know, the Reddit is called Wall Street Bets. They are from the moment go treating Wall Street as a casino. You know, they are they're like, oh, this is just a rich person's casino. And we're just we're you know, we're not gonna pretend it's some lofty thing when it's really just gambling. Um, and I, I think you when you combine that realism with the three categories that Chamath uh, listed for and, and go watch our uh, our regular podcast to talk about categories. We'll have one coming out soon. But his three categories of um, uh, of these types of posts are one uh, analysis that he thinks are thinks is better than uh, many of the hedge fund managers that he works alongside. Um, Two are groups of people who, um, you know, were young during 2008 and whose families lost their homes and then saw these hedge funds get bought, uh, you know, bailed out and were wondering, like, what about us? 
And then third, like uh, people who are, you know, authentically like interested in the kind of energy of this this movement and who want to really also stick it to Melvin Capital and and now Citron Research, right? You know, and it creates a complex situation because while you know everyone is grasping to turn this group into a, a homogenous uh, uniform identity they they essentially resist that you know there's various intentions there's various motives and and that's why I don't think it can be reined in in like the normal way that uh, the Wall Street would try to do so even though as we will see later they are trying many of the natural PR methods oh they are trying so hard and I mean a great example of this of what you're that you're kind of describing is um, I believe it was Wednesday night so that would have been January 27th or 26th um, so GameStop, you know, you're getting these tweets happening and all of a sudden the broader world is finding out about what's going on. And for a brief period of time, Wall Street bets, the Reddit goes private. Um, yeah. They go from something like, you know, they were a, a subreddit with like a million users to six million users in, an, in basically a day. And when they shut down to try and and figure out how to deal with this influx of people because they're getting flooded by bots and and uh, most importantly, information from bots that go against their principles and their philosophy for what they're doing. And this uh, to their Discord as well. Um, yeah, and their Discord gets shut down for quote unquote hate speech. Hate speech. And, and then they made that claim, Reddit made that claim about um, uh, Wall Street Bets itself as well when they, when they took it down officially. Um, right, and so so for like two hours they were down because they were they just made private, no one could access it. And people who had just put in money were freaking out. And they're trying to find places to go for information and for leadership. And one of the subreddits that took up that mantle for those two hours was Occupy Wall Street. Absolutely. And you know, and and that paradox should be apparent, right? That Occupy Wall Street is being flooded from users from Wall Street bets, right? Like Wall Street bets, like we are interacting, uh, some might argue, embracing the market. Uh, but we are going to occupy Wall Street because they understand what this is doing to the hedge funds, how this is turning the sort of normal um, way of operating on its head. And it's it's very destabilizing, right? And, and there's sort of two kind of like theoretical principles that are kind of at play here, right? Um, on the one hand, you have uh, the writings of this guy, Nick Land. Right, mm -hmm. Nick was a British philosopher who was who studied Gilles Deleuze, and um, he in in the UK created a group of followers and developed this concept of accelerationism. Right now, as a per, uh, as a person who has studied Deleuze, a lot of Deleuze, 
I would argue that it is a massive deviation from what he's talking about and should not be like equated with his philosophy. But nonetheless, Nick Land was a very fascinating writer. And what the basic premise of accelerationism is, is that it is possible for agents to press the market to its maximum degree through a sort of almost hedonistic embrace of the capitalist principles so that the eventual um, uh, collapse predicted by Marx would come about, right? Um, and then on the other hand, you have almost a, I won't call it socialist, but um, let's say a kind of uh, anarcho-leftist approach to this where there is, they see a direct target in these giant hedge funds, um, Melvin Capital and Citron Research, and they specifically want to do damage to these, these groups. And um, as you said, they really don't care about the money in and of itself. You know, they put in a thousand dollars does that $1,000 change their lives? No, but they can do uh, something. They can have this bit of control over what happens in their lives and in people's lives in general through sticking it to these short sellers who, who they see as, as predatory, right? Right. Well, and it's, yeah, and it's like, it's so funny too because you know, that is like, that is like kind of the glue that's holding this group together is, you know, and part of it is, is the philosophy of Wall Street bets, right? And so if you had been following along on the Reddit, you know, one of their like catchphrases is it's diamond hands, you know, basically, I don't have paper hands, I'm holding, I have diamond hands, like strongest material on the planet like you can't crush these hands, basically saying we are all holding, we are not selling, even though some of us have made huge gains. And what this does, and this is what I think is really troubling to Wall Street, because it's not like this has never happened before. The, the famous example everyone uses is Volkswagen in 2008, where there's a similar squeeze, uh, squeeze going on the stock went from like 200 or 200 euros to a thousand in an afternoon and then plummeted back down to, uh, you know, in the 200 range. And some people made a lot of money. Uh, some people lost a lot of money because, you know, obviously when talking about GameStop, you'd be lying if you, if you said that this wasn't a bubble, right? Like GameStop isn't worth $312 a share, or at least it isn't worth that yet. Yeah, And you have this like weird combination of, you know, on one hand, this like opportunity to make an obscene amount of money. And then on the other hand, this opportunity to stick it to the man. Yeah. Right? And like the one thing that bridges, right? Like you mentioned this like anarcho syndicalist or anarcho socialist part of this. And obviously another side of this who very much embraces capitalism but the kind of one through line for all these actors is that they want to see Melvin Capital go down. Yeah. You know, this is this is revenge for 2008. This is revenge for um, you know just the elitism and the hegemony that we live in in our current system, right? 
and this actually brings us to a, a, a really good clip, which is, um, I think, a breaking point. One, one of a, a boiling point it was um, when Andrew left, who is the CEO of uh, Citron Research, um, decided to make a YouTube video, mainly directed at his uh, investors, I imagine, but one that went completely public and uh, and viral, and where he makes the largely uh, aggressive, sometimes ad hominem, um, sometimes logically fallacious uh, arguments against the people of Wall Street bets. Now, it's in the con in, in this context, the the stock was at forty dollars. It's not as if it had gotten to it's $480 point yet. Even at $40, he couldn't understand how these people had evaluated it. And in a sense, it insulted their intelligence. And at that point, Melvin Capital, CEO, whose, whose name escapes me at this moment, but, um, and, and uh, Andrew Left got an enormous amount of hate and, um, uh, I think we can show you a couple of, of good clips, um, first of which being uh, this clip of Andrew Left talking about why the stock was going to go back down to 20. I know who's long GameStop right now. The people who are ordering pizzas to my house or signing me up for Tinder or doing all those cute things trying to hack my Twitter account. Now, I know you've been going after a specific hedge fund, no need to name, that's been short GameStop. Uh, people believe they're short. This particular hedge fund happens to be one of the top consumer discretionary funds out there. So you should actually listen and see who's short the name and why they're short the name. As a someone who does go short, I always look who owns it. Ryan Cohen owns the stock at $9. Very smart guy. If Ryan sells it at 20, he doubles his money. If Ryan sells it at zero, he still has more money than me and more money than you. Basically what you have happen is, is this only fans the fires rather than put them out you know you basically have these hedge fund managers who are trying to uh sort of be the voice of reason and tell people that wall street bets is creating a bubble that these stocks will plummet back down to earth but in a strange way it only creates solidarity with them the stock continues to store um which puts melvin capital in even worse financial situations because every time the stock goes up the interest that they have to pay on their borrowed stock increase and the amount that they have to spend to cover their losses also increases and um so this is thursday uh, i guess that would be the 27th um what is that yeah no thursday the 28th excuse me um and uh, a lot of the users on Wall Street Bets, you know, they, they specifically identify themselves as kind of every, every man, every people. And a lot of them, especially the new adopters, are using Robinhood. Um, and so Robinhood is an app that you can download on your phone. And it is very easy to make trades. It's easy to set up. And so a lot of people are using Robinhood to execute these trades. And what happens on Thursday is Robinhood announces to its users that um, for stocks like GME, for AMC, 
and then BlackBerry and Nokia, which uh, were also talked about in Wall Street Bets as being stocks that are being shorted, not to the extent as GameStop, but have a similar potential uh, and also have similar bullish outlooks as far as their business models going forward. Uh, Robinhood users are forbidden from buying any stock and are only allowed to sell. And so immediately, uh, Reddit users across the country and across the world decry Robinhood of market manipulation because, I mean, it, it is, you know, like if you are only allowing us to sell the stock and we can't buy it, you're basically manipulating for that stock price to go down, you know? Um, yeah, and, and um, you know, it's worth noting that Melvin Capital gets this $3 billion influx from uh, another hedge fund down the street um, in New York uh, just to uh, keep, keep it afloat, right? And, and that's another infuriating aspect to this. But in the case of Robinhood, right, you have uh, this this um, uh, stock selling institution, uh, Citadel, right? And Citadel works through uh, numerous vendors, right? Most of whom pay Citadel for the right to uh, buy and sell stocks through them, right? But what Citadel does with Robinhood is different. They actually pay Robinhood, but they have the right, the discretion to say if or when and if a order is filled, right? So Robinhood, which brands itself as like this tool for the everyman, literally the story of Robinhood is, you know, uh, steal from the rich and give to the poor, right? But they're not able to fulfill this branding whatsoever because they have a direct conflict of interest. Um, if the uh, uh, buying uh, does not help Citadel or the interest of the friends of Citadel, which are all of these hedge funds, um, then uh, Citadel can just shut it down and Robinhood as just a simple app has no control over that. Now, obviously there is a problem with Robinhood in the first place making this deal, knowing that what their function is going to be. But obviously they wanted access to the market. But the larger thing is in Citadel, where uh, it, they have, throughout this event, have flexed their power over the market and have also done the same thing to AMC and uh, a couple other stocks that were within their larger portfolio. Um, and, you know, what, what started to happen was as the stock rose to, you know, extreme heights, um, the people who were involved with Wall Street Bets, and likely many of them were not original users of Wall Street Bets, started to prank and mess around with the CEOs of, of Melvin and Citron, right? And so a lot of this stuff is innocuous. Annoying calls, pizzas sent, um, as Andrew Left will complain about later, setting up a Tinder for him. 
Um, <laughs> I didn't hear about that one. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, these are typical, um, you know, Reddit, 4chan behaviors. Like nobody who follows these uh, social media platforms is shocked by this being a part of the game. But at the same time, um, this became a, a useful talking point in the uh, media outlook for Citron and uh, Melvin, and then the range of uh, firms and hedge funds and analysis groups that all live off of this. Um, and so there, we, we have a couple clips um, of, the, of Andrew Left, the head of Citron, um, the first of which is just him complaining about what people are doing to him, but then also proclaiming that he is really the true defender of the individual investor. And, um, and then also this uh, CEO of a group called S3. And I'll just leave the comparison he makes to you first, just to see the absurdity of how the media and how these uh, hedge funds tried to spin the actions of Wall Street bets. Let's start off with what is uh, almost bordering on the ridiculousness here uh, with regards to the GameStop trade, a trade that some people say at some point probably started off with a real fundamental valuation type of uh, assessment that is now just basically seems like it's kind of a tit for tat between uh, the day traders, the retail traders, and some of the short sellers out there. What do you make of it? Uh, get prepared for a, another round of short squeeze. So the original uh, folks that shorted this stock have been taken out only, only to be replaced by those new investors that more or less uh, remain said what you said, which is that, um, you know, this is just a bricks and mortar company. There's nothing new. We don't care about new management. And uh, we're going to short it again. And that's why you see the short interest still at $4.3 billion. Mm -hmm. But um, there's something new here, which happened on Friday, which really is, uh, I think, something we really need to keep an eye on as market watchers and as a data company, which is that, you know, Andrew Leff comes out and he says, hey, the stock's overvalued. There's nothing really controversial in that. But what happened is that this caught the eye of, the Reddit army, yeah. and they really went after him. Uh, they went to intimidate him and went after his family and sent packages. And yeah. there's a whole height of uh, harassing him to the point where he yeah. feared for his own personal safety. So this is something new where you see vigilante capitalism go from the halls of our capital to our capital markets. It's something new, and I think we need to really keep an eye on that yeah. because it's all about liquidity and it will affect the liquidity eventually. Second, it is very important. I also have respect for the people on the Wall Street bets and on the Reddit message boards. Before there was Reddit, before there was memes, before there was Instagram, and yes, before there was even Facebook, there was Citron Research. We were the voice of the individual investor against the institution. I took the lawsuits, I went to court, I took the questions to lay the foundation. So obviously I support any opposing opinions. But what I never did was I never got personal, I never got nasty, and I never threatened a corporate executive, their family, or any shareholders. 
it was always business. The CEO of S3, he compares what is happening to our, our markets to the riots on the Capitol. I mean, I think he literally says, uh, you know, they have moved from our capital to our capital markets, which is just frankly absurd, right? In the case of the capital riots, we don't have to go into it in any depth. You had a particular group of ideologically motivated actors whose unification was entirely political, right? In this case, you have apolitical actors, leftist actors, right-wing actors, um, uh, people who consider themselves classical liberals, uh, new liberals, um, and- People with no political affiliation at all. At all, people who didn't even think of it in those terms. Served to, again, ratchet up what, I think you can identify in the in the Reddits as what we're talking about is class consciousness. Now it's it's a it's a uh, stymied, uh, muddy class consciousness because of its relationship to uh, capital markets. But it's kind of true that where else would this recognition happen? Last time I saw it happen was in two thousand eight, and. You know, you see it again, you know. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's like what these comments actually serve to do is they are the the spark that, that lights the fire, right? Where, um, you know, you got these obvious dinguses coming in and comparing the Capitol insurrection on January 6th to these Wall Street bets short squeeze, which is obviously an an idiotic comparison to begin with. Um, But this is what spawns the fire, right? This is what spawns to all these people like AOC and Ben Shapiro, both coming out to basically criticize the same organizations of, of the hedge funds and Robinhood to throw their support behind the regular people, the Wall Street bets people that, you know, normal Americans have every right to, uh, you know, use the tools that hedge fund managers do. And as far as what you say about class consciousness, while it seems ridiculous, you're like, well, how can a bunch of people trying to get rich quick on the stock market be anything but class traders? But as soon as, as these guys make these statements and start comparing um, GME to the capital insurrection, it you you know you create a divide, and that divide becomes the elites and everyone else. Yeah. And you know, so what you're seeing for the first time in my life is this really surprising thing where you've got uh, you know folks who were sworn mortal enemies three weeks ago, leading up to the presidential election and everything that's followed since then towing the same line because at the end of the day, I mean, the thing that unites a lot of the fringe right and a lot of the radical left is, uh, you know, a mistrust of the government is a feeling that our liberties and privacies are being squashed and that we're being exploited. Yes. You know, and, and what this really does though is totally 
ruin whatever strategy uh, like Melbourne Capital and everyone has for the stock to go down. And it turns the people who have invested in GME into this almost militaristic frenzy. And you see these posts on, this was from Thursday when Robinhood had shut everything down, where you have, um, this is a Reddit user named Insomniac, who in all caps types, this is war. This is fucking war. The enemy will use every weapon and tactic to their disposal. Hold the line. Rally your troops. Settle for nothing but absolute victory. You have come this far. Their resources are nearly spent. Monday comes and their ships crumble. Our reinforcements are endless. For every eagle lost, we recover it with two more miles taken. Hold the fucking line. You know, which, where... I think if they actually just let the stock spike, you would have had a lot of people sell off yes. with their money. Uh, people would have to fend for themselves. But now there's this almost militant solidarity that they've built, you know, that they will be the ones to lose. Even if we lose every last cent, they will be the ones that lose their money, you know? Well, I, I mean, I think the strategy showed a basic misapprehension of the problem, right? And showed that they never, as... Chamath mentioned, you know, before, looked at Wall Street bets and what was going on there, who these people were and what their intentions were, right? right. Um, but I think um, what, what the uh, capital comparison shows is just uh, a, a, another misapprehension, which is that you're kind of showing your ass, right? Like there's all there you're building up all of these examples of cutting out, you know, regular people, right? And if you're trying to turn them into some homogenous group, uh, you, you don't try to go against them as a collective because, you know, there are separate ideologies in it. If they had wanted to, they could have attacked one idea here and one idea there and tried to sow distrust, you know, like the Russians did for, uh, have been doing for 30 years, 40 years, you know. Um, but it, instead, they, they have paired Melvin Capital getting new uh, uh, funds, um, shutting down access to Robinhood. Um, temporary lack of access to Wall Street bets and to uh, the Discord. Um, uh, whole media is calling this insane, right? And then at the same time, all these people are saying, you're just not getting what this is about, right? That, you know, hold the line, right? That is not talking about capital at all. And so it brings into question, is there some kernel, right, of potential understanding? Because inevitably, what was so ridiculous about the cap uh, Capitol riots? The Capitol riots included a whole bunch of people who were genuinely exploited, as every worker is, right? who may or may not have, because many of them were upper middle class, but have suffered because of the actions of Wall Street, right? 
Yeah. And they had totally misguided the force of their understanding due to a mountain of lies, right? But in this case, it becomes so crystal clear the you know artificial villains and heroes. Now that brings up problems. Like, is Elon Musk a hero? Absolutely not, right? And he is. And it should, it should be said too, right? Like, part of the reason he's jumping on this is because Tesla, his, you know, his company, his stocks have been routinely shorted by Melvin Capital. So yes. he's got this like personal, vin, you know, vindictiveness that's adding to his thing, where he's kind of fanning this fire because he also wants to see that hedge fund fall because they've been fucking with him. For a long time, and you know, I, I agree with you. I don't think Elon Musk is a hero, or uh, is even part of Wall Street bets. You know, I I, I think people would want to put distance between him and them. Um, so they idolize him. That's what makes this so complex. You know? Yeah, yeah. And um, I think her name is Kathy Wood, and um, who who was actually the big thing on Wall Street right before this happened. And uh, and Shamath, they have become sort of these like paragons of value because they're speaking for them. And and in that lies the dangers of this at, at a political level, where it does it can trend toward a type of populism, right? That uh, starts to lose sight of why the death of something like Melvin Capital is good. It's good because of the uh, demonstration that we have some control over the mechanisms that exploit our labor, right? Right. We can say stonk goes up and stonk goes up. Yeah. You know, it's an incredible expression of our power unified as citizens, right? Yes. And, but at, at the same time, if it becomes a game, a populist game, and we'll see, and you can see that through like the political expressions, right? Because like, for instance, AOC was one of the first people to comment on this in the political sphere. And she uh, says it's, uh, it's, it's exploitative, right? It's, right. it's taking away these rights. And she then had a response directly from Ted Cruz saying, fully agree, right? Um, to which she responded, and I think this was beautiful, um, I'm, I, I welcome working with any Republicans, and you can show this as well, um, to, for, for uh, support, but I don't want the support of someone who just tried to kill me three weeks ago. And, and this is what shows the difference between the right-wing embrace and the left-wing embrace of what is going on. Because, like, we have two more clips um, that, that we can show in, in a bit. But, for instance, this Ben Shapiro and Hassan Piker, they're two probably, arguably the two largest figures on the right and the left as far as internet talking heads, Hassan on Twitch and, uh, and um, uh, 
uh, Shapiro through the Daily Beast or the Daily what whatever it's called. Yeah. His his right his right wing uh, uh, propaganda factory. They're saying that the Reddit guys, they don't care about the underlying value of the stock. They don't care about the fact that they are now trading the stock in multiple times what it actually is probably worth. What they really care about is screwing the Bruces of the world, and this is screwing up the market mechanism. So that's kind of a, that's a somewhat fair criticism. The other thing that they don't like is they don't like the people getting screwed. They don't like that it's the hedge fund guys that they normally trade with who are getting screwed. So what you have seen is places like Robinhood say, we're not going to allow you to continue to buy up the stock and continue to artificially inflate the price of the stock. Right? You're seeing other places take down subreddit boards, right? The subreddit board was actually taken down. The folks who did that said, oh, it was to ban hate speech. It was not to ban hate speech. It was not to ban violent speech. It was specifically done in order to undercut the market for GameStop stock. It was deliberately done in order to create a sellable market. So people would start selling their stock immediately and the price would go back down and people would stop getting screwed over in Bruce world. Okay, so that's exactly what's going on with GameStop right now. You can be on either side of that. You can be on neither side of that. You have to admit that this is legitimately one of the funniest things that has ever happened in the history of Wall Street. What Shapiro finds in this is that it's funny, right? That it's good memes, right? Well, and that they're actually defending, you know, like what they find so troubling about it is actually just liberal ideas, right? Yeah. That somehow the free market economy is being undermined by these elite hedge funds. And while I would agree with that, at a tenuous level, right? Right. I, I, I also don't agree with free market economics and like kind of liberal economic policy. As a Marxist, that like I'm wholly against that, right? And, 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 and you can see that in the Don Jr. Uh, tweet as well, where he's saying, oh, as soon as, you know, the people, right, where he's really trying to consume this into the right-wing populist Trumpism, right? Right. Um, it, it tries to, you know, participate the elites, of which he is a total part of, and has participated in this type of activity for his adult life, right? Um, and the media are, you know, trying to shut them down, where he is distancing himself from the tacit agreement with all of this for history, you know, for the history of his life and for the history of his ideology. And the same thing with Ben Shapiro. Whereas where you look at Hassan's um, um, reaction, it's to the basic hypocrisy, because um, as we'll see in his clip, it's a person talking about now the need for regulation, right? No, mm -hmm. never need for regulation before 2008, after 2008, fuck it. But now we really need regulation. Actually, I think it would be good if we- yeah, Let's talk to that clip right now. Yeah. You know, we've mentioned social media. I couldn't help but it's not obviously similar to, to some of this um, controversy surrounding Facebook and Twitter and everything else. But but once again, what, what's one of the um, one of the things that we're talking about is m maybe misinformation and, and uh, pump and dumps. And it's occurring on social media again. It just. I'm wondering whether it's part of the same problem, the type of regulation that, that 
that we finally need to uh, to consider. And like I said, uh, we should always have a... We got to regulate, dude. We finally, we literally have to regulate. Notice that an entire group of individuals who literally make money off of telling you the regulation is a burden and a hurdle and bad for capitalism are now clamoring for regulation because this is the last straw. Always remember, these people would rather fucking die than give you money. And this is why I think it's important too when you start looking at like what these stocks are and sort of the the moments of connection for these like very strange bedfellows um because like you look like look at the stocks right it's GameStop it's AMC you know movie theaters it's Nokia it's Blackberry it is these are representational things of kind of our our, our postmodern lifestyle these these yeah. totems of what that life is and you know again this is another weird sort of philosophical uh, paradox too, because it's kind of in, in trying to hold on to these things that the internet, that the internet age, that whatever follows postmodernism is, is eliminating. And it's kind of this, again, this weird expression of like, we will not let these things die. Uh, not because of their quote unquote value, but but we're starting to talk about values that have nothing to do with economics. Yeah. You know? And you know, there's right. like, and, and like, as Benjamin would talk, there's almost an erratic quality to it. You know, they, the, the death of a GameStop store, right? It leaves this after image for people because they have identified with that brand, you know, in, in this capitalist age, it is part of them, and and clearly these the the companies that were picked have this factor of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then and then of course it's being disseminated through these memes because like the original meme was like sell at four twenty sixty nine. Yeah, which obviously didn't happen. We saw the stock hit four eighty three or whatever we said it did. And people haven't sold off because now the dialogue has changed, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, as we've analyzed, it's not quite class consciousness, but uh, it's something akin to it, right? And, and now we're getting the tenor of the dialogue has changed. And I'm going to read this other post on Wall Street Bets. The, um, this was, can't remember if this was Thursday or Friday. It just says 10 hours. So, um, yeah, this was Thursday as well. And this person writes, hold, hold for 2008. Hold for everyone who lost their homes. Hold for everyone who lost their retirement savings. Hold for everyone who has lost anything to these bastards who have taken everything they can and then some. Hold for the unjust bailouts. Hold for your student debt. Hold for your future children's education. Hold because these hedge funds overexpose themselves trying to destroy a struggling company that still had 5k stores open and 50k employees hold because if these fucks had the chance they'd bury us yeah and, and this is what it's become they we've the redditors and everyone else who's invested in gme and and you know full transparency i bought a stock of gme for no other reason than i just want to be a part of something that might 
fuck up the economy, you know? Yeah. And, um, and the tenor of everything has changed to this, to this thing where it's like, it is, it, you know, it has become an us first them thing, which again is this weird muddy ground because I don't like binaries, right? Like my whole political platform is a fighting, a, like, I don't like binaries, you know? What's happening with gender I think is one of the most you know, philosophically radical and revolutionary things to happen in our lifetimes. But it's it's just amazing because in trying to use their strong arm tactics to l minimize their losses, they've only managed to maximize the strength and solidarity of these kids to hold because it's not about making a fortune anymore. It's about making a statement. Well, one thing that I have thought about, and, and it recently popped into my head because there's a film coming out about him, about Fred Hampton, right? Uh, called Judas and the Black Messiah, right? Um, and it looks like an interesting film as an aside. Great but, title too, man. Yes, sick title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's just get that out there. Um, but um, you know. One thing that I think is necessary for the left is to look at figures like Hampton or Chavez and Huerta and how they approached left-wing populism and the opportunities that they took that brought people from all different walks of life, often from different political backgrounds, because we have you know, right environmentalists and uh, libertarian anti-capitalists and all kinds of people who see this same problem. And the left has to be the group that shows it analytically, that speculates out what we can do in the future with these kind of ideas. Like, no, it shouldn't be ad infinitum, oh, we just find a new stock and go after it or whatever. But that people who believe these things, right, who would go to uh, Occupy Wall Street afterward, despite the fact that they are a tried and true uh, uh, capitalist, right, that these people have an openness to a certain set of ideas, universal ideas, about what is ethically right and wrong mm -hmm. uh, in, in the way that the market behaves. And to cut out the rightist tendency to like try to mire us in all of these little social fights. Or, and I shouldn't even say rightist, the neoliberal. Because for instance, as we were talking about earlier, the attempt to compare this to the capital riots was an attempt to push away liberals right right, right. It, was, it was an attempt to say oh if you're if you're a a, a, a sane level-headed liberal you don't want to be part of this right but these people are too heterogeneous for this there's too many contexts in which 2008 had an, a, a massive affect on, on people's lives. And as such, it's, it's necessary that the left identify that. 
And and with the Hassan Piker uh, clip that just played, where he's pointing out the hypocrisy while in the Ben Shapiro clip, he's simply just thinking of this as a funny game, right? right? Well, that's the difference, is that the left authentically has answers about what we should do going forward, can point to uh, different uh, institutions around the world that are better than our own and aren't afraid to say it. And if they can recognize Wall Street as an institution that's wrong, then that can be that recognition can be spread to other institutions that are deeply exploitative. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I feel like the left is so concerned about betraying their message that they forget to to deliver the message. Yes. And and this is an an instance of that where it's you know what the best praxis for this situation is, as you were saying, kind of delivering these explanations, delivering the message of you know the fundamental critique of capitalism you know and that you we have all these eyes on this situation because it's exciting and you know we've all been stuck we've been stuck at home for almost a year now uh and so you know obviously i think people need something to do they they want something to be distracted by and because of that we have a captive audience that you know, hearts and minds can be changed in a way that they could not be, say, for instance, in the election, or even if Bernie Sanders was running for president yeah. instead of Joe Biden, where the dividing lines are not intrinsically left and right on this one, it's top and bottom. Exactly. And so that opens, you know, avenues for people who might be on the right to actually see that they are agreeing with leftist politics and have been manipulated to think that they are actually right-wing Republicans. Yeah, and, and, and it must be said, and I think both of us can agree on this, that here in differenti differentiating the bottom from the top, we're differentiating the on-the-ground uh, variation of right-wingers. And there's a certain amount of right-wingers who there is no communication, the, these, the proto-fascists, the neoliberals, uh, the authentic fascists, that, that's out of the conversation. And But more importantly, that this isn't a, a, a political thing. This isn't about unity between right. our two parties. This is about the left as a grassroots, authentically human communal system working to introduce people to its ideas in a way that is right in front of our faces. And, uh, you know, I just think it's necessitous right now. Yeah. Um, any, any leftist who isn't using this as an explanation is dropping the ball. Oh, totally, totally. You know, and, and that fear of, you know, it being sort of using the master's tools you know, I don't think is a bad critique, but you know, I, I think as the left, we need to stop eliminating our options, you know, because we're afraid that it's not that our praxis isn't totally pure, you know. Yes. And and this is this offers us a very interesting moment where for the past four years, people have been primarily 
actors, political actors, you know, whether that's the progressive left, whether that's the revolutionary left, whether that's neoliberalism, whether that's whatever weird QAnon Trump <laughs> brainwash thing, you know. But for a moment, we, we have this brief moment where all of a sudden those distinctions aren't the foreground. Yeah. And, and, and like an authentic multiplicity rather than a false multiplicity of what your political affiliation is, which are, are these kind of over, you know, top down categorizations. Instead, you have real people's motivations and cares and, and authentic views, right, being brought to the fore. You know, just 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 take them seriously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, what I mean, it's 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 a really incredible moment where it's just certain consistencies are coming to the fore, and there's a lot of opportunity there. And you know, the the messaging, like we need to make sure that it doesn't turn into, okay, now we're shorting silver or now we're squeezing silver or, yeah. uh, you know, let's get Dogecoin to a dollar yeah, and this kind of thing. But the messaging rather is look at the power we actually have collectively. Yeah. You know, the, I had a professor once who kind of off the cuff throughout this term, he called it the hegemonic turn, right? Where, Hegemony isn't just that the police have guns and can arrest you, are legally allowed to arrest you, uh, but there's a part of it that you look over your shoulder, right? When you pass by a cop, that you look over your shoulder and in so signaling your power dynamic, right? In so signaling that you are their subordinates. Yes. And what the situation is revealing that the hegemony it feels like we are under is maybe not as solid as it seems. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, the really exciting part about this. And that, that as, as sort of political thinkers, we need to remember that the messaging of this is our collective power is actually great. And we can do things that people would, wouldn't conceive of being possible. Absolutely. You know, we live in a country that is a rightist country. We live in a place where the left is a marginal group compared to other political powers. Anytime we have an opportunity to grab some interest, right, to, to disseminate ideas is one that we should take. And uh, I, I can't think of anything more essential that I've, I've got. Yeah, and, and hopefully we've accomplished a little bit of that here today. Um, you know, and hopefully you find our analysis interesting and hopefully that uh, none of this, that this doesn't matter come tomorrow, Monday. Um, a lot of people thinking this the squeeze is gonna come this week, we'll see. I have a feeling that the hedge funds are gonna turn this into a siege and see how long they can make it last, but um, I mean, there there are now billions of dollars of new shorts on GameStop now buying now borrowing at you know three hundred something dollars, which is an extremely safe bet um, from the standpoint of a hedge fund that can handle it for another like six months, right? Like these right. 
don't last forever. And that's really what's important uh, about what we were just talking about. But I will say we uh, have a, another video, uh, 1.1 of Text of the Matter. It will be in this format that's coming out soon. It's uh, going to be a little bit like quantum entanglement with this video. Um, uh, make sure to uh, check us out on, you know, whatever social media you use. Um, we're Text of the Matter at Twitter. Um, check out the Facebook group. Feel free to post about this on there um, and uh, click subscribe on YouTube. It really helps us out. Um, yeah. And if you're flush with cash from your game stonks, um, find our Patreon, Text of the Matter. Uh, you know, your support helps uh, us, us do the good work and buy us our books and stuff like that. So yeah. thank you for watching. Thank you for joining us. And, you know, we'd love to hear what you have to think about all this too. So. Yeah. Peace out, everybody. Bye. I want the American people to decide in November of 2020 what the future should be. I think, um, I mean, I think it's kind of obvious people can not only see the emotion on your face, but hear it in your voice when you talk about this, Lee. Why? I care. That's it.